Our scripture reading this morning is found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you so much that we have the privilege of being able to open your book and to read your word. And we thank you, too, that we have the privilege of hearing your word expounded. And I just pray that it would be with Pastor Paul as he comes now and opens your word to us. Would you speak through him the words that you have for us this morning in your precious name? Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. I mentioned this a, a while back. I can't remember which message it was in, but um, about how we think about the end. There's a lot of depictions in our world of uh, various ways in which the world will end or will not end. We come to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, and we get a very clear picture from God's word about how the world will end. And it really brings us to the end of history as we know it and uh, life as we know it and puts us at the brink of eternity. And eternity diverts in two directions. One is everlasting life on a new heavens or in a new heavens and on a new earth. Or the other is everlasting separation from God in the lake of fire that destiny will be determined at the end of the days at this great white throne judgment. I'm not sure that this text is a terribly difficult one to understand, although there are some challenges to it, but it's a difficult one to face because it's one that digs deep into all of our hearts and souls. What we have in chapter 20, verses 11 to 15 is a more detailed and a more graphic portrayal of the judgment that John has already and spoken about back in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, where there again he describes the end of the age in which we know, and he says there that the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
simply put, the time of God's patience and long-suffering and mercy are over, and a time for judgment has come. Paul talked about this when he spoke to the philosophers in Athens. He says they're declaring with certainty that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. This is a description of that day. There are a lot of passages in the New Testament that speak about judgment. There's one individual that indicates that there are at least seven judgments recorded in the New Testament. I'm convinced at least of five, and I could be talked into possibly seven. My understanding is that all of those judgments will take place on the last day. They're not separated or spread out over many years. Whichever way you look at it, I don't think that is terribly important other than to know that there is coming a day in which God will judge the world completely and finally. Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15 describes the end of all things in the great white throne judgment. And it deals with the final judgment of the dead and of death itself. What is certain is that there will be a resurrection of all the dead. Daniel speaks of this in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders and his disciples, said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. And then again, Jesus tells of a time when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels are with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there's a sense of finality as we come to this particular text, and it's fitting that it's at the end of the Bible. It's the end of the created order as we know it. It's the end of human life as we know it. It's the end of the presence of God for all those whose names are not written down in the last book of life. It is the end of the last enemy death. And this is the last great reality described in Revelation, which is the final judgment. It's another throne room scene. We've had a number of these throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, the one that immediately jumped to my mind was in Revelation chapter 4 verse 2, which really describes the beginning of the last days. And it describes there that uh, after this I looked and behold a door standing into heaven and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And then John proceeds to describe the one on the throne, what was around the throne, what was coming from the throne, what was going on before the throne. It's a stunning description of the heavenly throne room. We come to this description, and it's stark simply a great white throne. Whiteness symbolizing God's purity or his righteousness and his righteousness with which he judges. 
mankind. Notice there's nothing else in this description, simply a great white throne. In fact, the word great is the word from which we get mega from. This is a mega throne. And it dominates the scene that John is now describing. All that John sees or all that he describes is, is, is simply this throne. There are no visuals, there are no sounds, there is just a throne. Well, not just a throne. He says there's one sitting on the throne. It's God. Don't be troubled by some of the scriptures that say that it's not just God who sits on the throne. For example, I just read from Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, which indicated that the Son of Man, who is Jesus, will sit on his throne and judge the world. We read in Acts that it's God who will judge the world in righteousness. We read in Romans that it's the judgment seat of God. We read in Corinthians that it's the judgment seat of Christ. And so which is it? Is it God on the throne or is it Christ on the throne? Well, it's both. It's a co-regency. In fact, in Revelation 21 and 22, we read about a river that's flowing out from under the throne of God and the Lamb. And a little bit later in the new heaven and the earth, it says, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, speaking of the new heaven and the new earth. So they are the same throne. Next, John tells us that earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. John has described such things before in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. He describes this cosmic upheaval and terror among earth dwellers. And they say to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? And the seventh trumpet sounded, and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne, saying, It is done, and every island fled, and the mountains disappeared. Have you ever wondered why that takes place? Why, when we see this throne scene, all of a sudden does John describe the mountains or the heavens and the earth fleeing away? Well, this is a way of describing, I think, the cosmic upheaval that comes as a result of God's judgment and the trauma that's brought even to bear on the created world in which we live. Because we understand that even the created world in which we live has been stained or marred by sin. And it is feeling the effects of sin. When God first created the world, he declared at the end of creation that it was very good. It's not something that has continued to evolve, but there was a point in which God spoke the world into existence. And at the end of that speaking the world into existence, he says, it is very good. But we know that after that, sin entered into the world and there was a curse that came upon the world. And ever since then, Paul describes in Romans the fact that creation has been subjected to futility and that it itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. What John is seeing here is the reality that sin has infected every corner of our universe, not just humankind, but material reality. And so at the presence of God, even the world and the universe that has been corrupted by sin flees from the presence of the holy God. It's an awesome scene that is described here. I suspect, though, there's another thing that's going on as well when we see heaven and earth fleeing away. I think it's a way of describing the pervasive presence of God. There is nowhere to hide. There is nowhere where the presence of God does not reach. And in fact, the psalmist says, Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. 
If I make my bed in Shoal, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light shall be about, uh, the night, the light about me shall be night, even the darkness is not dark for you. And the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. And in another place, the biblical writer says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That word exposed in Hebrews is a word that expresses incredible vulnerability. It's the same word that's used to describe a a lamb whose neck is stretched back, prepared for sacrifice. It's exposed, it's vulnerable. And so the scripture declares that there is nowhere to go from the presence of God. In fact, John then writes of seeing the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. I'm convinced that this is a reference to all mankind, believers and unbelievers, all standing before this great white throne. I just read from uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, which is a clear reference to believers, and it describes them as the great and small. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 18, it speaks of earth dwellers as the great and small. So this is believers and unbelievers standing before this great white throne. Nobody gets a pass. The rich cannot bribe their way out of judgment. The insignificant cannot hope to be overlooked. All humanity is described in this scene as before the throne of God. The fact that they're standing is a clear indication that the resurrection of the dead has taken place. The resurrection that Daniel talks about and that Jesus talks about. The sea has given up its dead. Death and Hades have given up their dead. Not their souls, their bodies. Our resurrected bodies, both righteous and unrighteous, are now standing before the great white throne. Another indication to me that we have both believers and unbelievers standing before this great white throne is that there are two sets of books that are open. There are the books that are opened, and then there is the book of life that is opened. Two books, or the books that are open, contain the record of everything that everyone has ever done or ever said. Everyone is judged according to what they have done. I think this is the same scene that Daniel describes in chapter 7 where he says a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him and the, coat, or the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. It's a way of saying that when we stand before the great white throne, the evidence against us will be clearly and completely laid out. The idea that everything I have ever done is recorded in a book was traumatic for me this week. It was overwhelming. I just thought of my last week and I was traumatized. But everything that I have ever done, thought, intent, and motive behind all of those deeds is recorded in these books. Everything is there. Nothing is overlooked. Nothing is hidden. 
The court of heaven has undisputed evidence. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, said, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. As already recorded, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We have the believers and the unbelievers standing before the great white throne. There's a lot in the Bible that is said about works. And I have a page and a half of stuff that I said in the first service, but I confused myself and everybody else. I think the point that John is making and the point that we are meant to get here is that our works will fall short in gaining us entrance into heaven. And God's work, or God's judgment, is based on our works. He gives us his commands, he gives us his laws, he writes those in our hearts, and yet we choose to disobey him, and we choose to walk away from him, and we choose to believe that our works will atone for our rebellion and our wickedness. And so we all have a book. And we all stand before the great white throne with our deeds exposing our lives. But with that in the back of our mind, keep in mind that as we think about those books, there's another book that dominates the scene. It's called the Book of Life. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, it's described as the Lamb's Book of Life. This is Jesus' book. It is the register of those from every nation and tribe and tongue whom he, Jesus Christ, has purchased for God with his blood. And the ultimate criterion that determines each individual's fate is whether or not their name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. It's an ancient book. It's a book that was written before the foundation of the world. There's, a, there's a, a tension in this text. There's a tension between the sovereign will of God and out of whom names are written down before the foundation of the world and between human responsibility before God and our deeds recorded in a book. One book declares the sovereignty of God written before the foundation of the world, reminding us that God will save, that death will not conquer. And there's the other books which reflect the human responsibility of mankind and their deeds. As this judgment scene comes to an end, those who face punishment for their sins and their rebellion and their wickedness are those whose names do not appear in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so what we have in this final scene of judgment at the end of the world is this thought-provoking paradox. A judgment based on deeds to which we all must give an account, but a book of life which erases our deeds.
Ultimately, it's not the record of deeds, but the register of those who belong to the Lamb that determines each person's eternal destiny. In other words, the second book trumps the first book. The second book carries the day. The second book is the Lamb's book of life. There's a song that heaven is singing. I like to think they're even singing it right now. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This Lamb's book of life is the book of the Lamb that was slain, and in it are the names of everyone who has been freed from their sins by his blood. The Lamb who was slain. As John in another book says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is reconciliation possible with God through Jesus Christ because God, for our sake, made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. How does that work? I heard the story, I was uh, at a conference a number of years ago of a man telling an account of a martyr in the 16th century who had been killed for holding to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And as his blood spilt from his body, the executioner took his Bible and dipped it into the blood. This man had actually held one such Bible of a martyr whose Bible was covered with their blood. This is fanciful, I know, but ever since that day, I have often thought that God has taken the book of Paul and he's dipped it in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And like magic ink, everything written in the book of Paul vanishes. I don't know if it's the right picture, but I do know the vanishing part is true. Because everything that was written in the book of Paul about me is gone. And now my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And there's this amazing transaction that has taken place because God has said that he will remember my sins no longer. God has said that he will cast all my sins behind his back. God has said that he does not deal with me according to my sins nor repay me according to my iniquities. God has said, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he, re has he, so far as he removed my transgressions from me. And it's possible because the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed for me. It's a terrifying statement that is left ringing in our ears as we go through this few short verses. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you remember, this is where the beast is. This is where the false prophet is. This is where the dragon is. Where they are tormented day and night, forever and forever. It's the same place where anyone's anyone whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was also cast. It's the same solemn pronouncement that Jesus made at the end of his description of the sheep and the goat judgment where he says then he will say to those on the left depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels 
What is this lake of fire? It's certainly, at the very least, a symbol of everlasting torment and anguish, which is epitomized in eternal separation from God, in whom we live and move and have our being. This is what the Bible calls the second death. To be thrown into the lake of fire is to experience the second death. Every human being, unless Jesus returns before we die, will die. That is the first death. Our physical death is the first death. The second death is when our physical bodies experience phys- or spiritual death and eternal separation from God, from the creator of life. So there's two sets of books. We all have a book. But the book that matters the most is the Lamb's book of life. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? This week, I came to appreciate, again, small things that you just skip over as you blast through Scripture sometimes. But in the first set of books, in my book, is written my deeds, everything I've ever done. In the Lamb's book of life is my name. That just meant the world to me. Paul Stewart Hawks in the Lamb's book of life. I wonder if there's a preface to that book. This is a book about those who the Lamb has loved and freed from their sin by his blood. This is a book about those who were dead in their sins and trespasses, but God has made them alive together with Christ Jesus and forgiven all their sins and canceled the record of charges against them and taken them away by nailing them to the cross. This is a book about one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the book about one who said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This book is about the one who had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we have been healed. All we like sheep has gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a book about those who sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The greatest issue of the day, the only issue of the day, 
is, is your name written down in the Lamb's book of life? God has made it possible for every single one of us to be reconciled to him, but on his terms, not ours. And his terms are the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the sins of all who would put their trust in him. And he told us that he loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should what? Not perish, not be cast into the lake of fire, but have eternal life. If you've trusted in Christ today, know and rejoice that your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. If you've not trusted in Christ, there is no more urgent matter for you to resolve than whether or not you want to face the great white throne based on the deeds in your book or based on your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Father, we thank you for your word today. As we come to the end of this portion of Revelation, as it brings us to the end of the world in which we know it, they're sobering words. They're words that call for the deepest reflection on our part. I pray, Father, for everyone here today who has heard these words read as I've tried to explain them and apply them, that we would not close our eyes on the pillow tonight until we have come to grips with the reality of these words. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.